Good morning and welcome to Wave Makers on WMNF with Tom and Janet. I'm Janet. And I'm Tom. And answering the phones for us today is Greg B. If you want to join our conversation, you can give us a call at 813-239-9663. And Greg will get you through to us. You can also email us at dj at wmnf.org or text us at 813-433-433. 0885. A friendly reminder, important elections are right around the corner. The end of election season is just five weeks away. Mail ballots start going out this week. If you aren't registered to vote, you still have time to get it done. Go to registertovoteflorida.gov to register or update your information. Later this hour, we'll be hearing the voices of voters telling us what's motivating them to go to the polls this year. And this month, we begin the WMNF Fall Fun Drive. If you like Wavemakers and you love WMNF, Google WMNF Wavemakers to find us online, and you can hit the tip jar on our page. WMNF is powered by volunteers like me and people like you who support the station. 70% of our budget comes from these fun drives. WMNF depends on you to keep the lights on, the news going, and the music playing. Today's Wavemaker is celebrating the 100th anniversary of his family's weekly newspaper business. Patrick Montega is the third-generation owner of La Gazzetta, the nation's only trilingual newspaper and the go-to place for political news, insider gossip, and observations from a democratic perspective. A new documentary on the 100 years of La Gazzetta by filmmaker Lynn Marvin Dingvelder, no stranger to WMNF listeners, premieres at the Cuban Club in Ybor City on October 28th. Patrick, welcome to WMNF Wavemakers. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So let's just start with a very open-ended question. How did La Gazzetta get its start 100 years ago? Well, my grandfather traveled to uh, Key West and Tampa from uh, Havana several times in the uh, 1912, 13, 14, um, settled here uh, in Tampa in uh, 1913 and began a career as a lector. Uh, He was hired by the uh, cigar rollers at the Morgan Cigar Factory to read to them. Um, it was a very prestigious job, um, and um, over the years, uh, he um, uh, started doing some writing for some newspapers. Uh, there seemed to be another newspaper he wrote for a year before he started uh, La Gazzetta in 1922, and so he basically moved his voice from being one that was only heard in the cigar factory, the one that, uh, a voice that was printed on paper and uh, shipped around to people. Um, so it was really kind of the same business, just a different way of doing it. When it was first printed, was it in English, Spanish, or Italian? It was only in Spanish. It was a Spanish daily, uh, six days a week. Uh, uh, They took Sunday off, uh, wire service from uh, uh, Spain and Cuba, and it was uh, not the only one. Uh, There was a lot of newspapers in uh, Ybor City at the time. Uh, Some were very radical, some were very union-oriented, some were you know, they were all over the place. And uh, like I said, it was one of those voices, but the only one that survived out of that group. And uh, so your grandfather uh, kept running the newspaper until your father took over. So how long a period of time and when did your dad take over? Well, my father started working uh, for the newspaper as a young man. 
Uh, as far as I can tell, it was the only job he ever had. Um, uh, besides a stint in, uh, for World War II, where he volunteered and was uh, sent over to the Pacific. Um, and so he um, was with the newspaper and became the publisher, I think, in 1961, 62, somewhere in there. Um, uh, the reason why is um, my grandfather had been a big supporter of uh, overthrowing Batista and been very big supporter of uh, the revolution and Fidel Castro, as many people were. And uh, after um, the revolution went bad, uh, after the U.S. Uh, broke uh, relations, a lot of the um, Cubans who had immigrated here, the Batistaites, people who were part of the Batista government, people who came right afterwards, turned against my grandfather for the strong role he had played. Uh, you know, you couldn't blame Castro. He was back at the island, so you blamed who was local. Mm -hmm. And so in order to help the newspaper and to uh, um, preserve it, uh, uh, my grandfather stepped down and gave my father the role. Uh, my grandfather worked at the newspaper, though, till 1979, uh, always writing his column, always uh, sitting in his front office at uh, 15th Street and, uh, and Palm Avenue. Fascinating. And so the, the newspaper, uh, I assume, has moved locations, the physical location of its offices and printing or whatever. Yeah. Where did it, did it start in Ybor City? Because now it's just outside of Ybor City right. in... Uh, in lovely Gary. In Gary. <laughs> the historic city of Gary. Yeah. Um, uh, we started on uh, between 13th Street and 14th Street on 7th Avenue. Um, uh, our friend Bill Carlson has his headquarters there for Tucker Hall. Um, and uh, so in the middle of that block is where it started in the back of a printing company, uh, Mascalusa Printing Company. And uh, from there, it moved over to 15th Street and Palm, the La Benefica building, which still stands. Um, and uh, we were on the bottom uh, corner of that building for, for years. In 1980, um, Chester Ferguson approached my father and told my father that um, um, he had a, was a rich, powerful man. He controlled the Likes family, but he wanted to have a voice in Florida. And so he was going to buy up 30 or 40 radio stations. He wanted to buy a newspaper starting off with, so he huh. wanted to buy 49% of Legacetta, and he was going to bring in Hugh Culverhouse and George Steinbrenner as the other partners for Legacetta. Wow. So, um, so he bought us a building over at um, uh, 33rd Street and 7th Avenue in G Historic Gary. And uh, we bought some new equipment, and uh, then he passed away, and all there was was a handshake. Uh. So that, uh, that died, and so I ended up in partners with... Uh, uh, Stella Thayer in the building, uh, his daughter, uh, but there was no involvement in the business from the Likes family, and so uh, that was one of the reasons why we moved. And so anyway, that uh, that was an interesting little tidbit in the yeah. like I said history. Your father, uh, his name was Roland Montega. Sure. If we haven't mentioned that yet, he he was really, really well known, especially for somebody who's let's face it, it's a weekly newspaper. Sure. Yet his his standing in in Tampa, I think, was was much larger than the maybe weekly circulation he had. And he was very famous for having uh, a table with a phone at a little place called uh, La Tropicana on 7th Avenue. Yeah. Uh, you could see the, him there virtually every day for lunch. And not just him, he would draw pretty big names, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, people were looking for a Hispanic vote, and uh, 
And so it was easy to go see one or two or three people and hope they could deliver it to you. I mean, you know, it's still that way today. You, you hope it happens that way. Sometimes it doesn't. So um, Roland uh, was very good friends with a gentleman named Bibi Menendez who owned Tropicana. And uh, at the time uh, in the 70s, Ebor was dead. Nobody was building anything mm-hmm. unless you were the government. And Bibi decided to build a new building for La Tropicana, catty corner to where he'd been. Uh, so at 19th Street and 7th Avenue is where he was going to build it. And so he decided that, um, you know, Roland had been great for his business. Uh, he loved Roland. Uh, you know, judges would come see him. So he decided to do something special for him. So when he built a new uh, location, it had a little platform in the corner, a wrought iron fence around it, and he put a table that he bought from Mexico in there that was different from all the other tables. And he put a reserve sign on it, reserved for Roland Manteca, and it was there from 73 to when they closed here a couple of years ago. With a phone on it so he could get tips. Well, yeah, guess, yeah right? before I mean, cell phones, you had a uh, you had I, to have a, a regular phone. So yeah, he had a what, regular phone in the back, a red ha- one. What happened to that table? Where is it now? The table's at the Cuban Club. The red phone's at my house. Uh, for the <laughs> uh, film, we're going to uh, set up the table in the red phone. And so if people want to take uh, pictures with it before or after the film, they can do that. And uh, uh, so we even have a Tropicana menu we'll throw on top of it and... And relive the old days. Well, since you brought that up, tell us about the documentary. How did you? Uh, how did that come about? And um, what can we give us a preview? What are we going to see when we see that? Well, um, uh, Lynn came to us and and said she wanted to do this, and so uh, we said great, and and we opened up our archives to her. Um, uh, we were uh, currently doing some interesting research. We have a gentleman uh, who writes for us in Spanish, uh, Gabriel Cartaya, our um, uh, Spanish editor, and he was doing a book on my grandfather's old articles, uh, Chungus and No Chungus, and, um, and uh, wanted to uh, see the world through my grandfather's eyes in the early 20s, 30s and 40s uh, in the issues of Cuba and Spain, and my grandfather's very involved in those things. And so he was doing the book at the time, and so, you know, his information, you know, he was able to share with um, uh, Lynn, and um, and so, you know, it started developing. I, I think at first she thought it was going to be, you know, 30-minute documentary, and then she thought it was going to be an hour documentary, and she started doing interviews with people you know, past mayors, uh, E.J. Salcinas, uh, people who wrote for us. And so I think she's now about 90 minutes and, uh, and having to struggle to keep it there. Um, a lot to tell. There's a lot to tell. You know, it's a big history. It's a long history. There's a lot of history that I've learned about. I've been excited to uh, learn more about my grandfather. I, I just didn't know a whole lot. And um, Tell us something you learned that was new that was new to you. Well, my grandfather was a... Um, um, really a big push for democracy in Cuba, just a a continuous fight to try and um, and and nurture that country into a, a free society. Because they've never had that, and he thought that maybe Castro was the answer, as many did sure, in Tampa. Sure. There were fundraisers in Tampa for Fidel Castro before the revolution because Batista... Well, for, for, for our listeners who don't know much about Batista... Not a good guy. No, 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 no. He was a horrible guy, and and, uh, and and Cuba was corrupt, and it had always been corrupt. But what I found out was, you know, this was a struggle he did against Machado. He did this struggle against. I mean, this was a this was a, a issue with Lagosetta since 1922, and probably before. 
And so, you know, his efforts to, to do that involved a lot of travel back and forth when you'd have one dictator uh, leave. Uh, a lot of times my grandfather would try and talk to the people who were reassembling the government, trying to help them, trying to nurture them. And Tampa was a great place to uh, ferment ideas about democracy for Cuba, a great place to finance uh, these uh, little revolutions, these overthrows. Um, and not only for that, but also his involvement in Spain was, was uh, for the uh, Spanish Civil War was uh, uh, tremendous, uh, you know, in helping the Abraham Lincoln Brigades and sending uh, guns from Tampa and sending money. Uh, it earned him uh, the um, designation from uh, the FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover, of being a communist because yeah. he supported the republic. And the republic uh, was communist. You had a choice between not uh, fascism or communism in, in, uh, in Spain at the time. But the republic was a, a communist republic. And, and he supported it, as did a lot of people here in Tampa. And, um, and so, uh, like I said, after a while, he ended up uh, with, that, uh, with that designation. Later on, the FBI rescinded that and uh, said he was not a communist. Wow, I had no idea. Now, one of the most important, uh, I guess, most popular features of La Gazzetta to this day is the column that you write, mm -hmm. that your dad used to write, mm -hmm. I want to know if your grandfather used to write it, called As You Heard It. As We Heard It. As We Heard It. As We Heard It, I'm yeah, sorry. That's a group As effort. As We Heard It. <laughs> uh, yeah, my father started in, uh, I think, 1955. Um, and um, I inherited a column, probably a weird thing to inherit, I uh, don't know many people who've inherited a column. Um, and Roland used to uh, have people who would just feed him information. Um, you had the Tampa Tribune here. Uh, the Times wasn't that involved in, uh, in um, Tampa politics at the time. And so, you know, if you didn't want to feed the Tribune, uh, if the Tribune didn't want to print what you were talking about, you went to Roland. And so Roland would print, you know, political gossip about who was running, uh, who was going to get a job, uh, even who might be the next uh, Gasparilla king. <laughs> um, and, uh, and it would bother a lot of uh, the society, the Palmacia uh, pearls of the world, um, that uh, Roland would print some of this stuff and get it out there. Uh, he was a, uh, an advocate for the people, an advocate for the Latin community about getting jobs, about getting power. And, you know, I even had a call today, right before I got over here from a gentleman who used to be a beat cop in Ybor City. And he was telling me how he, there was a uh, call box on uh, 16th Avenue and uh, 16th Street and 7th Avenue that a lot of times, uh, you know, would be ringing and he would have Nick Nucio telling him, come over here and have uh, coffee with me and rolling at Cuervo's. And so, you know, it was that kind of town where Roland just had his, his, his pulse on, you know, everybody from, you know, everybody would talk to him from politics, politicians to prostitutes would talk to him. And it seems like people are still talking to you. Oh, they, they, yes, they do. Because there's, you know, uh, we still have a town sometimes where you have a strong mayor system and sometimes people don't want to uh, take on certain parts of our government. And so, and they feel like sometimes the, the Times and other major medias don't want to take on these issues either. So um, I'm going to read an email that we have from David Bryant. This is um, <clears throat> just since we're talking about the As We Heard It column. Um, it, it, 
Uh, David wants to know, um, what is your take on DeSantis suspending War Andrew Warren? Does Warren have a case to get his job back? I feel like this is like the book and movie Minority Report, but kind of in reverse because it's not the future criminal being pursued. It's the prosecutor being accused of not doing his job and not following the law. Some of these laws are not even in effect yet. So what's your take on that, Patrick? Well, I was very much against what the governor did. I feel like he uh, went beyond his uh, power. I believe the power to, to um, you know, take a politician out of his position is one based on the fact of if the politician ends up with Alzheimer's or goes crazy or, mm -hmm. or you know, is found to be corrupt. Those were those powers, not that they have a political spin that you don't like. Um, and I do think that um, uh, Warren has an opportunity to get his job back. I think that the venue of a federal court is the right place for him. I think this would have been impossible had he gone before the Florida Senate, which appears to be owned at the moment by Governor DeSantis. And so I, th I think he does. I was reading up on the case this morning, and it appears that, um, uh, you know, uh, he's going to push the First Amendment issue. The governor's trying to say that, that he was an employee and therefore he didn't really have First Amendment rights. And I think there's strong evidence to show he was not an employee of the governor. No, I thought no, he was an independently elected official. and that's He's part an employee of the, of the taxpayers. He's an employee of yours <laughs> yes. and mine. Yeah, yeah and well, I'm not happy they fired my guy. You're right, exactly. <laughs> One thing I wanted to bring up, though, because a lot of folks might be wondering right now, where can I see Lagaceta? So first of all, you're not really online, are you? We are not online. Uh, we are very old-fashioned. Um, you can get us in the mail. You pay $35 a, a year to get it. You can go to our website, lagacetanewspaper.com, uh, and there's a subscribe button, and you can uh, put your credit card information there. You can go to Wawa's or to our local bodega and see if we're there. We have some news racks downtown. And we have uh, retail locations from... Uh, Crystal River to Fort Myers and from St. Petersburg to downtown Orlando. So we uh, can be picked up in 10 counties every Friday. Uh, this week it was a little bit late. We had a hurricane. Um, but you printed. We printed. Unlike the Tampa Bay Times. Right. Which did not print. We always print at La Gaceta. World War II doesn't stop us. Fire doesn't <laughs> stop us. Hurricanes doesn't stop us. You just do it. In fact, our, our press was in Venice. And so oh, wow. Tuesday, we, um, we got our newspaper finished Tuesday night. Normally, we'd get it done Thursday afternoon. Ah. And so we were predicting, of course, like everybody, this was going to hit Tampa. And so we wanted to get job, done with our job and ship it to our press since they would be safe. Well, all of a sudden, we realized the press isn't safe. We are. And um, so they had our, our, all of our electronic documents, but um, uh, on Thursday morning when we called them, we could get employees, but they couldn't tell us the shape of the press. They couldn't tell us what was going on. And so we immediately started to get on the phone to call other offset web presses throughout the uh, state. And uh, everybody in Tampa was closed till Monday because they were going to, uh, they thought they were going to have a hurricane. Orlando, you couldn't reach because they were having a hurricane. <laughs> Um, and uh, we didn't want to go down to Miami because we'd have to cross the path of destruction and didn't know how well the road network would be in. So we ended up in Callahan, Florida. We found a little press up there. 
Uh, and they, we got printed Friday morning instead of Thursday afternoon, and we got it in the mail. And uh, so I drove up, uh, deadheaded up to Callahan. And I don't even know where Callahan is. I just say. north of uh, just north of Jacksonville. It's uh, oh wow, practically and, Georgia. Actually, almost got hit there too. Yeah, but, and yeah. Uh, and so we zoomed back and and did it. So that's what you do in a newspaper business. That you is dedication. Done. Yeah. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Wave Makers on WMNF with Janet and Tom, and our guest today is Patrick. Mantega. He's the publisher of La Gazzetta, a tri-lit Eng- a newspaper that prints in English, Spanish, and Italian, uh, the only newspaper in the country to do so. They're celebrating their 100th anniversary, and there's a documentary film about the newspaper that'll be debuting on October 28th at the Cuban Club in Ybor City. Um, and speaking of Ybor City, you're very entrenched in Ybor City. We talked a little bit about how Ybor City has evolved over the years, starting with um, the cigar industry and having its heyday of the 1920s and then the interstate coming through and an arts renaissance in the 1980s. And we have a text message from um, um, Baba who wants to know, Patrick, what do you think about the gentrification of Ybor City? I feel like the young hipsters are ruining Ybor's edge. Also, what is your take on Scientology's footprint in Ybor? He, um, Bubba does not like what they've done with Ebor Square. So, hipsters, Scientology, um, what do you think about those um, influences on Ebor City? Well, let's start with Scientology. Um, when Scientology bought the building, uh, Ebor, uh, the old Ebor Square building, uh, I was uh, with the Cuban Club and we went to sue the city for allowing them to operate a church there. Uh, it was not zoned for a church. I think we're the first people who threatened to sue Scientology for actually being a church. Everybody sued it for not being a church. Uh-huh. <laughs> so they really didn't want to take on that fight. Um, the mayor at the time, Pam Mario, didn't want this fight, but I, I don't think she wanted to fight with Scientology about the building. So we sat down as a group, and Scientology signed a paper document and got it in my desk drawer where they've agreed to stay on their block. They wouldn't buy anything outside of that, that they would sell their other building in Ebor, and that they, re- and that they would address the fact that Ebor Square was a uh, historic building, that those uh, factories were historic, that it was a historic site for Cuba because uh, Jose Marti gave one of his famous speeches on the Iron Steps there, and that they would uh, keep it open and allow people to visit. And so they've been good neighbors so far. I can't complain. They've uh, respected uh, the history. They've uh, certainly uh, done a good job of keeping the building. They've been good neighbors to the uh, Cuban Club and... um, and, you know, that's one of the times when you take your role and you step out of it as a newspaper and you try to become an activist for your community to, to make it happen and to make it safe. As far as hipsters, you know, I, um, I, we're preserving the brick and mortar of Ebor, but I think the spirit of Ebor is really at risk here. Um, you know, what made Ebor was the fact that you had people who owned their building and owned their business. And therefore, if they wanted to be in the suit business, they could sell suits and they didn't have to worry about it. They set their own rent. If you wanted to be in the bar business and be only open for certain hours and have a respectable business, you could do it. If you wanted to be in the cleaner business, you could do it. Whatever you wanted, as long as you own your own business, set your own rent, you can do whatever you want to. Well, We've turned 7th Avenue into a place of renters. Mm-hmm. And therefore, your business is now, the type of business you do is dictated by the cost of your rent. 
And it means that you're having the people to do more crazy stuff, more sink or swims, more just straight bars. You can't do what you want to do because you can't afford to do what you want to do. And so I think that that's going to have a big change on the character. We have a lot of residents coming in. That's having a big change on the character. Um, You know, we keep trying to uh, get people to understand the history. I think that, you know, if you live in Ebor, if you understand it and you understand its history, it's so much more enjoyable than if you just go there and think it's about, you know, some roosters running around and... Uh, or as much as you can drink for $5. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that, you know, if you, if you really start to dive in, you can become one of our Ebor City characters. We've had people who've come in who've... You know, uh, General Dave Scott, who owns uh, Bad Monkey, he's uh, he's part of Ebor Fabric. I mean, if you immerse yourself, you can do it. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have to have lived there three generations. What do you think about the Daryl Shaw development coming in? What kind of impact is that going to have? Well, there, there's there's my concern. You know, Daryl Shaw, I think, is a great developer. I think he tries to do the right thing, and I've seen him spend a lot of money in historic preservation. But at the end of the day, I would love more diversity of ownership of Ebor. I think that was part of Ebor's real strength, and I think that it's going to be a weakness down the road. Uh, having, like I said, having everybody being a tenant is not a great way of keeping, you know, 50, 60-year-old uh, businesses going, you know. Could, could the Columbia have survived had they been somebody's tenant? And their project does seem to be looking to preserve the heritage in terms of how it's designed and how it looks. But everything you're doing is, I mean, Central Ebor was the same way, I suppose, trying to sort of capture the the um, spirit of it, but it still is an imitation. It's a shopping mall. Sure, yeah, and and, and that's what you, uh, that's the strength of Ebor is it's authentic, and, and these people are trying to, you know, uh, make something similar. You know, I just, you know, I, I, I can't stop progress. Uh, you can only try and adjust it here, push it there. It's kind of like an asteroid coming at you. You know, you, you hope you can influence it a little bit. And this is a big asteroid coming towards uh, Ebor City. So we hope we can influence it. I hate the I hate uh, gas works. I've told them I prefer Latin Quarter. Uh, mm-hmm. Would be a lot better. They've gotten a lot of pushback uh, on that name. Uh, well, you know, it's 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 named after one little parcel, and he's building a lot bigger parcel. And who cares that it was People Gas's headquarters? I mean, you know, right. at the end of the day. What about the idea of having a raised stadium uh, there or nearby or on the edge of Ebor City? Is that does that really fit in with the historic character? Of well, this, of I, I, the, I was I was for the raised stadium where they were going to do it when it was didn't have a roof on it. As soon as they were going to put a roof back on it because of it needing to play year round, I was not a fan of it and did not want it to be there. I think that right now. I think if it's going to be anywhere near Ebor, it's going to be uh, probably on that uh, port property uh, on Channel Side. Huh. And Any, so that would be close to Ebor, but not in Ebor, and that would be the best of both worlds. I keep hearing different rumors about where it might go. I mean, there's even rumor that it might be over there by uh, around 40th and, and uh, the Crosstown. Who knows? I mm-hmm. mean, it, doesn't, it seems like they're not really sure what's going to happen to it. What about um, the high-speed rail Brightline coming to near Ebor anyway, what do you think about that? What kind of impact might that have? Well, you know, uh, we hope they stay within uh, I-4's footprint. Um, I know there were some plans to uh, have it uh, come on the south side of I-4 before it got to downtown, which would require some housing to come out. Um, Don't know where they're at currently with it, Um, but... um, uh, you know, we try to do everything we can to uh, keep people whole. It's it's very hard. FDOT doesn't build neighborhoods; they build roads. Right. Uh, they build through neighborhoods, mm-hmm. and so trying and they divided, to and they divided Ebor City when yeah, they built I four. Yeah, I mean, they 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 screwed us bad in nineteen you know in the nineteen sixties, and 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 they've been doing it. 
to us ever since. Well, speaking of preserving um, Ybor City's heritage, let's talk about the Cuban Club, which is very near and dear to the hearts of all of you out there listening right now, if you're a WMNF fan, because that's where historically we've had our tropical heat wave, one of the best events that WMNF puts on. And one of the best events there. in Tampa, really, one from of the best a cultural events in Tampa. standpoint, because it brings so many different bands yeah. and so many people to Ybor City. And I think tropical heat wave helped bring people to Ybor City at a time when you were talking about, in, say, the 80s, especially mm-hmm. when I first moved here in 1980, Ybor City was dead. Sure. The buildings along 7th Avenue were empty. Mm-hmm. And uh, so why are you so passionate about the Cuban Club? You are pretty much single-handedly preserving that building. Well, you know, the the Italian club had uh, Joe Capitano and Sawayardo and a few people in the Italian club has done a great job of, of working well. Uh, Centro Storiano had um, had uh, a group of people uh, working with it, never was in bad shape. Um, the Cuban club, um, out of the groups, actually had the biggest problems. And part of it was the fact that it was involved with Cuba. So, you know, if you came here from Italy, you could join the Italian club and you didn't, there wasn't factions of people, you know, these people in Italy were this faction, these people, the Italians were this faction, didn't have factions. The people from Spain and who identified with northern Spain, they didn't have factions. But because uh, of Cuba politics and U.S. politics, the Cuban club suffered uh, throughout its actual history with the fact of its closeness to Cuba and the fact of Cuban politics. so And then another Cuban club was built in town and country, right? Yeah, yeah, that was part of it. They didn't want to be part of our Cuba club. They wanted to be their own Cuban club. So as you got new immigrants in, they didn't join. In fact, they split. And uh, But even before that, we had problems because in, uh, if you had a strike in Tampa in the 20s and you were Cuban... You got on the ship, it was, you know, and one day you're back in Havana, you're working there for another three or four months until things settled out here. So the Cuban club's um, um, subscribers would go way up and way down based on the politics here in Tampa and the workforce here in Tampa. And so it was really in bad shape. Um, and, and, there, and the Circular Cubano had gotten down, the club that owned it, had gotten down to a very small group of people. And they were having a lot of problems because they were still trying to provide health care. We actually, they're the oldest HMO in America hmm. uh, at that time. And, um, and so they went to um, some people like Ray Grimaldi, who owned Columbia Bank, my father, um, Ro Levine, who was an old member there. And they tried to figure out what to do because there was a mortgage on the building and they were going to foreclose on it. A doctor had a $70,000 mortgage on it. It was going to take over the building. And so this group formed the foundation, and they decided that they were going to um, pay off that mortgage. And my father and others got this huge board together of everybody from Bill McBride to Sheriff Heinrich and got all these politicians together. And, and they saved the building, and then they decided to try and restore the building. And so they, the foundation started to raise money, and the club was supposed to run. Eventually, that didn't work out, and so the foundation started running. So my father was a founding member of the foundation. My grandfather, of course, was there when the building was built, uh, had been supporting it throughout his life, as he had all of the historic clubs. And, um, and so uh, when my father passed away in uh, 1998, I took over his position on the board. 
my wife was already there. She was a president before I was. And after being on the board for a period of time, about five or six years ago, I just decided this wasn't going to get done. We were never going to finish this bill unless somebody decided to do it. And so I asked the board to give me a permanent position as director of uh, construction and grants. And I decided that I'm going to try and get this thing done. And so, so far, we've invested $4 million in the building. We've paid off a million-dollar mortgage. We've got another million and a half to spend. Uh, we are constantly knocking on everybody's door. We're begging for money. And, uh, and you've gotten some government grants. So. And we've gotten a lot of government grants, a lot of support. And, and so it, I just want to get this done. My, my father has a statue. My grandfather has a statue. i got to earn mine. And, and, <laughs> and getting the Cuban Club finished might be my way of earning it. That might be it. Now, your family has had, uh, you, we've already talked about this, longstanding ties with Cuba. I don't know if your father went to Cuba a lot back in the day. When he did. I, but that was a weekend trip for p- folks in Tampa. Sure. Uh, especially during the Batista uh, regime. Uh, but you have continued those. You've gone to Cuba how many times? I think 19 times now. Uh, wow. Ever since 2000, I've had, uh, uh, had two meetings with Fidel Castro. Uh, I met with uh, people on every level of the Cuban government. Um, um, lately, we haven't been meeting with people in the Cuban government as uh, frequently. It's uh, it's tough, and um, and the U.S. position and um, against Cuba is, sun, uh, is in such a place where the Cubans really don't even have any hope of improving it. Yes, and so uh, you're a staunch Democrat, but uh, what do you think of the way Biden has approached the Cuba? Well, I, because Obama obviously would have right. made you very it, happy. It's to kind win. of a whiplash, right? It depends on the administration. Yeah. We have like the loosening of relations under Obama, then tightening under Trump. Now we have Biden, and that, has there been any movement at all? Very little. Um, you know, Biden's failure uh, was not taking care of this in, in, in the first two or three months of his, of his presidency. Had he just signed uh, uh, executive orders eliminating Trump's executive orders, uh, we would have been back to Obama's uh, situation where you could travel a lot more freely. You could uh, give money to your family a lot more freely. There was a lot better organization of Cubans immigrating here than there is currently. And um, had he done it then, it would have been great. But uh, he waited, and then we ended up with these protests. And there was a misunderstanding in Tampa and Miami about what these protests were. These protests were by people who had just got done and were still in a, a pandemic situation. Uh, they were having deaths. Uh, they were left to uh, creating their own vaccine, to administering their own vaccine. They were ostracized from the rest of the world in this issue. And, um, and they were a country who couldn't afford, like the U.S. did, to write everybody a check and say, here, you know, we're going to make your lives a little bit miserable because you can't go to work or anything, but here's a check, and, mm-hmm. and, and hang out at house and be quiet. And a lot of these third world countries didn't have that ability of writing checks to their, their people, so they just suffered. And so, you know, Cuba was, uh, lost its number one industry, which was tourism, and it was just suffering, had no money, no food. Um, and these people were protesting because they wanted food. They and, wanted, they're, and, and they're fleeing right. in droves. Sure. To South America and finding their way up to the uh, U.S.-Mexico border. Any, 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 uh, any visa they can get, they'll take, and they'll fly there. Um, so you were in Cuba recently, right? I was, uh, and, and it's a, a bad situation, a situation that I think we're making worse. I still want to end the trade and travel embargo. But I also have to tell you that, that we are causing our own uh, immigration issue at the border with Cubans. Um, 
Currently, there's 20,000 people who are allowed to come from Cuba to America each year, apply, and, and this should be an orderly process. I think last year, 8,000 were able to fill the slots. The reason why is because our embassy hasn't been operating because Donald Trump closed it because of a so-called attack on our U.S. embassy by a sonic device, uh-huh. which since has been the CIA and all, you know, all of American uh, agencies say that didn't happen. Um, and certainly Cuba was not the, the group that did it. Um, but anyway, they're still suffering with the shutdown based on this false pretense. And so these people now have to fly to Colombia to do their interview. They've got to come back and then go back to Colombia for paperwork. And so it's this horrible process. And so we could at least take, you know, additional, you know, 12,000 people and not have them fly and walk across the Rio Grande to get here. They get here in an orderly fashion. But also, if we just throw in the trade and travel embargo, they'd have some hope in Cuba. And hope is what they're missing. And any hope they get will keep people in Cuba and not have them try to get here to America. And so, you know, I, you know that, that's one of the few places where I think we could actually reduce the amount of people streaming across the border. And, um, and all it is is just by eliminating what we're doing against them. Um, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Wavemakers on WMNF in Tampa with Janet and Tom. Um, and we'll be right back to start talking about the midterm elections after this break. Want to hear what one listener called the most disrespectful show he's heard in 20 years? Join Donna, Liz, and Amina at 10 a.m. on Thursdays for Surly Voices. A fresh, fun, feminist take on current events, politics, and social justice. Slaying the patriarchy, one show at a time. Surly Voices, Thursday at 10 a.m. on WMNF 88.5 and WMNF.org. Welcome back to Wavemakers and WMNF. We're here with um, Patrick Mantega. He is the publisher of La Gazzetta, a trilingual newspaper that has been publishing for 100 years. They're about to celebrate their 100th anniversary. So um, in the last um, portion of the show, let's talk about the midterm elections and and what's coming up. Um, Patrick, what will you be keeping your eye on um, in this, what we call the election season, because voting actually really starts now, goes on for about five weeks, and does not end until November 8th. As mail ballots are going out this week. Well, you know, uh, we'll probably be looking at uh, who is returning those mail ballots. If we see a lot of young women, independents, and Democrats uh, returning those ballots very early, we'll have some hope. If abortion is the issue and, uh, and women come out to protect their rights, um, Democrats have a chance. If that doesn't happen, I think it's going to be a bad year for Democrats. What do you think about um, the job that DeSantis has been doing during Ian? Is that something that um, might affect the governor's race at all? Well, he has an opportunity to look like a hero here. I mean, you know, he's he's there, and he's uh, and and there's a massive uh, opportunity. There's massive effort to try and help the people of Fort Myers and Naples and that whole area. And, um, and so he has a chance of looking very gubernatorial. Um, and uh, it gives him a chance to stop being uh, 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 ridiculous about all these issues he's been pushing and not talk about the, some of the things he's been pushing for and instead 
uh, trying to get food and, and electricity and, and phone connections to people in the, the south area. So I think this is, hurricane's actually a benefit to them. Um, um, I don't necessarily know if this is beneficial to people like Marco Rubio, um, who really doesn't have an opportunity to play much of a role well, here. Especially when he votes against... Uh, well, yeah, now, now you've got this issue as, you know, did he really vote against uh, support up there? He says, well, the second vote he didn't, he, you know, but anyway... At the end of the day, I think that uh, uh, Rubio's got a tougher road than uh, than our governor, which is too bad because I think that the if DeSantis is reelected, I think he's a presidential candidate, and I think that uh, we're going to have a tone of government similar to Donald Trump's time frame. Or we'll worse. have to see what kind of abortion restrictions he comes with, up with after the election because he doesn't want to talk about it sure. now. Right. Well, and, and also the, the one shoe that won't fall before the election is the cost of this storm to every Floridian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the fact that we were unprepared for it with our insurance and that— um, They had a special session that was forced by State Senator Jeff Brandis from Pinellas right. and did basically nothing to fix the problem. And we've had this problem, and we've had the problem, and it's been festering under Republican leadership in, in Tallahassee. With you know, they own the House, they own the Senate, they own the governors uh, and the cabinet. So you wonder why couldn't they do something about it? You well, know, they, because they want to own the libs too. And so that's why um, they do so many of these anti woke bills. There, it's all about. His base, right? Yeah, yeah. He's he's constantly speaking to that uh, group of Trump Trumpers who uh, who, who want uh, a culture war, who feel like uh, there is a culture war, who feel that that minorities are taking over this uh, country, that uh, millennials are taking it over, that uh, crazy people who want to be nice to each other and kind to others are uh, are somehow uh, uh, a real danger. Well, it does seem like we're so divided now that I, I remember covering George. H.W. Bush, when he visited La Tropicana mm-hmm. and had a Cuban sandwich there, a Democratic stronghold, and he wasn't afraid to go there. Yeah. But now it seems like Republicans only want to talk to Republicans and Democrats only talk to Democrats. Is that, what do you think? Is that, is that a... Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's no such thing as having a conversation anymore with anybody in power. Um, um, you know, they, they want to spin it. They want it to be a TV commercial. They want it to be a radio commercial. It needs to be 30 seconds in length. They really don't want a conversation. There is no debates unless there's an even race. Uh, anybody who's got any lead never wants to debate their opponent. And we've gotten to a situation where we're really no longer about any ideas. This is just about supporting the, the, the team playbook, whatever that playbook is. It's well, a- the debates have become almost useless from what I mean they're horrible to watch because that's all they're doing is fighting and talking over each other and it's not a real debate um, using their talking points I find that to be frustrating what other races are you keeping your eye on this year Um, Uh, you know um, um, I think the uh, um, our local races are always of of great interest to us Um, I think the uh, but I think one that I I am very interested is to see if we have any kickback on on the Supreme Court judges um, I think that that is a place where uh, they've had big wins um, in retention. Uh, we have a merit retention process where you vote just to keep them or not keep yeah. them. You're not necessarily replacing them. But I think that there's been some effort to talk to people about the fact that some of these justices are going to be very bad on the abortion issue. Mm-hmm. Four judges are up for retention. Who five. The Democrats, five. There oh, are yeah. five who are up for retention. Okay. Four of them, the Democrats, are saying... 
vote no. They say vote yes only on Labarga. Labarga, right. So do you think that is a... We spent our entire show last week talking about this, partly because I'm seeing virtually no news coverage of this issue. I, I agree. Um, and uh, do you think there should be more... And do you think that the Democrats should be doing more to get the message out? Absolutely. I thought that this should have been a bigger package of, uh, of talking about the Supreme Court justices, uh, our Senate race, and our gubernatorial race as a package to women and saying, you want to get back your rights. Here are some votes you can do to do that. You've fixed this, you send a message to the Supreme Court. You send a message if you defeat DeSantis to every Republican in the nation that abortion is an issue and you need to get away from it or you're going to get hurt. And then you, and you, uh, and you help keep the Senate Democrat, uh, the Senate Democratic, which of course is the only way we're going to get a national uh, right to have an abortion. Yes. Let's take a minute to listen to one of our um, voices of uh, voters. Um, and we're going to be collecting these over the next five weeks and then playing them um, during our show that will be on November 8th, the last day of election season. Um, and if you want to share one of your stories with us, share, share something with us, you can email us at wmnfwavemakers at gmail, send us a recording, or send us an email and we'll arrange to um, record you. So let's listen to... Um, this uh, voter, what he has to say about why he is voting um, in November. Chase of Marlowe, 33. Uh, I live in Southeast Seminole Heights. Motivation to vote in the election ranges from trying to thwart fascism to, you know, just trying to make legitimate investments in that education, the environment, infrastructure. The state has so many issues, and to, if we could fix one of them, it would be great. Tell me about the um, first time you voted. 2008 with a lot of vigor for Obama. I mean, I remember the long lines in Leon County at the, the, at the courthouse trying to vote. Like, I'm 18 years old, bubbling with enthusiasm. I remember that pretty fondly. Do you want to share your story with us? Go ahead and send it to us at wmnfwavemakers at gmail.com. You can send us a recording or arrange for us to record you. So, Patrick, what do you think about that? A lot of um, enthusiasm in 2008 for Barack Obama. Do we have any candidates like that now that generate that kind of enthusiasm? Um, no. Um, Although, yes, Trump generates a lot of enthusiasm. Well, that's true. <laughs> well, you know, because what... what, what Trump represents and what Obama represented was, a, was a, a change. You know, it wasn't about Obama the person. It was about the fact that this country had matured enough uh, to be able to elect an African-American to the office of presidency and what that message sent. And then, of course, any strong social move in that direction requires an equal, equal and opposite reaction, which is what we had with Trump, which was, well, if for you know, scared a lot of people that we had moved that far forward. So that group wanted us to move us that far back. And so you end up with Trump, who uh, then was a, a signal that uh, this was a white America. It was a Christian America and that uh, and that this America should uh, flex its muscles and put uh, people back in their place who've gotten out of line. And so this leaves us now after the pendulum's gone one way and the other with somewhere in the middle. And, uh, and, and, and so people are not necessarily excited about any individual. They're excited about that bigger message. You know, and hopefully uh, uh, this attack on uh, women's rights is that bigger message that people can get excited about. Um, you know, the, the days of us being starstruck for any individual doesn't happen anymore because nobody can, um, nobody can stand that scrutiny. 
Right. We have a couple of important congressional races going on that are uh, hotly contested. One is uh, featuring, uh, you know, Laurel Lee and Alan Cohn up in the uh, northern part of Hillsborough and Pasco. What do you think of the chances of, uh, of, of either of those candidates? Well, uh, history makes it a very tough road for Alan Cohn. Um, but once again, if women are voting and they're voting uh, for abortion issues, uh, Laura Lee has kind of ducked those issues. And I think the reason why is because she knows her position is that of the Republican parties. And that means that uh, women should not have that right to choose. Um, but she says she uh, supports uh, exemptions for rape and incest in the life of the mother, but she also supports the current uh, 15-week ban uh, that does not have those exemptions. So she's, it sounds like she's got to figure out what her position really is. Um, that is true, and she certainly doesn't sound like somebody who supports a federal action on this. Right. You know, and that's the real issue. If you're like somebody to Congress, like somebody to the Senate— you're hoping they are supporting a federal action on women's rights to uh, uh, to codify them, to uh, let make them permanent, and to uh, make them uh, na- nationwide. Yes. And so, what do you think about Eric Lynn was just on Sean Canan's show? What do you think of his chances of uh, of, of, of keeping that seat Democratic as it's now Charlie Chris's right. seat? Well, they've done a, uh, a, a Republicans have done a great job of redistricting that uh, seat and have created a, a good chance for them winning. And I have to tell you, I'm just sad when I see um, a, a district that I think is going to end up being represented by a Republican in this case, but one that really has no. Doesn't look like the, the people who are, are electing her. I don't mm-hmm. see a lot of people walking around with uh, automatic weapons and in camo mm-hmm. in Clearwater Beach. Yeah, and Pinellas has always Beach. been a moderate, Republican right? And they're going to end up with a congressperson who I think is going to be Florida's Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, I think she's going to be, you know, um, crazy. It sounds like you think she's going to win. I, I do. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Wavemakers and WMNF with Janet and Tom, and our guest is Patrick Montega, um, the publisher of La Gazzetta newspaper. They're celebrating their 100th anniversary this year, and uh, we'll be premiering a documentary about the newspaper on October 28th at the Cuban Club. Right now, we're talking about the midterm elections. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can give us a call at 813-239-9663, or you can send us an email at dj at WMNF. Um, dot org. Um, so, governor's race. Then let's talk. We talked a little bit about that. Does Does Charlie Crist have a chance at all? You think, Patrick, or is this DeSantis's race? Is he going to walk away with it? Oh, I, I sound like a broken record, but it's it's women uh, who are going to make this decision. Uh, you know, if they come out, if they vote, if if Republican women, independents, Democrats all vote for for uh, their rights, then uh, we have a shot. Uh, if not, then we don't. I mean, this this whole thing was moving for the Republicans, you know, because of inflation, because right. of a lot of other things. And 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 in July, when this uh, Supreme Court action happened, you know, to, to many Democrats, it was the only hope. You know, gas prices are getting better. Um, um, you know, inflation's still here. Um, you know, Biden's numbers have ticked up a little bit. Uh, um, you know, maybe he does a little bit better with uh, Hispanics uh, than he was going to. And a lot of Americans now believe that democracy really is at stake. Yeah. 
Yep. But, so, so we have an opportunity. I mean, I think him going to Puerto Rico was a good idea for him, uh, for Puerto Rico. And you have a lot of Puerto Ricans here in the state of Florida that can vote. Um, you know, and then, but there's still a lack of real information. You know, I was uh, listening today. You know, FEMA won't help anybody in South Florida who doesn't have a good Social Security number. That means if you're undocumented, you don't get help. You lose your job. You lose your house. Uh, and you get nothing from FEMA. Um, you know, that's just cruel. And, and, you know, I think that there has to be more conversation about that. Well, there's definitely, um, with, the, with the hurricane, uh, an, an emphasis, I think, on people who are more well-off. and that There are people who are falling through the cracks on that. In fact, there was a caller, I think, on the um, previous Trump, show that Trump was just Trump. saying how there's been so much focus on Sanibel Island, Trump. which is a place where it's just a bunch of... Not, I mean, a lot of very wealthy people live, but you have all these other people who are out there and displaced and kind of falling through the cracks. Sure, you saw all those uh, wrecked boats, but those are people's boats. You know, uh, you go a little further inland and you got a family who's depending on their pickup truck to move them from state to state to pick crops, and they just lost their only transportation. Yes, and so this is a difficult time to be asking voters to increase taxes. And we saw uh, the school tax uh, go down and, uh, very narrowly, I have to say, in the primary. And now we have another tax on the ballot in the general election uh, to restore the transportation tax that was overwhelmingly approved by voters four years ago. So are you supporting that tax, and do you think it'll pass? I support that tax. I supported the school tax. Very disappointed. And very disappointed in, in the, the Times and other publication here not supporting it um i'm gonna call them out man that was a bad decision for them and we lost by 500 votes and i think they could had they switched their position we could have won that 500 um, votes every you know, vote matters patrick it does it does and 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 you know so right now i'm voting to uh you know i support us improving roads but you know given a choice i'd much rather prefer us uh supporting a teacher better uh, than improving a road. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm supporting this tax, but I'm, I'm very sad about the defeat of the other. I think this one wins. Um, People know how bad the transportation system is around here. Right. They drive it every day, or they sure. try to take a bus and it, it, it doesn't come, and there's not frequently a, frequent enough. Um, well, I'm glad to hear that you support it and that you think it's going to pass. <laughs> I, I, you know, I think this also is one of those issues where um, you have to wonder who gave advice to the school system about running their um, tax when they did. Yeah, um, in the primary instead a, of the- a bigger, you know, what people don't understand is, is that each election has a different flavor. And so when you're doing a primary election, you got 212,000 people coming out to vote, 240 mm-hmm. when in this county. When you do the next election, we're going to be around 600,000 in November. You know, if this was a presidential, it'd be around 800,000. So as you do that, it drives the age down of, who's, of the average age of voter. In a primary election, the average age is 60 years old. That's not very good if you're trying to pass a tax for schools. Mm-hmm. I'd much rather be in the general election where that average age might be around 50. Much rather be in a presidential election where that age might be around 45. It'll be interesting to see turnout for this election. I mean, do you think that it'll be high for a midterm? I would project that it would be. It just seems like people are really paying attention to the governor's race, really, in Florida. I would hope it is. I get a little jaded after a while. You know, uh, you're in this business for a long time. You watch these elections, and and you just see people... 
perform as they always do. You know, it, it's odd what causes spikes in elections. Uh, getting rid of Donald Trump was a spike in election. Uh, yeah. Getting a new stadium for Hillsborough County back in the, those days was a spike in the election. Uh, you know, supporting teachers wasn't a spike. Um, you know, and so, you know, I don't know if, if, if women's rights is going to be a spike in the election. I, I hope it is. Just not sure. More to, see, more to come on that. Thanks for um, being with us, Patrick. We really appreciate it. Um, thanks to everyone um, listening today. Um, this is WMNF Tampa. Thank you.